0: Well, it's uh, just on the 10.30 mark, so I thought we would get started. I'm uh, Dr. Joe Pergolisi, and I am the uh, chairman uh, at Pain Week for the Clinical Research Scientific um, Poster and Abstract Review Committee, and I've been affiliated with Pain Week uh, since the beginning and uh, acting chair uh, since uh, the last 11 years uh, for my disciplines. And this year, we're really excited because we've introduced a dedicated acute pain management track, and we've brought together some of the top individuals uh, in acute pain medicine, and we're hoping that this will even more so broaden uh, the pain week experience by having this additional track. So I thank all of you for uh, joining in this sort of uh, inaugural um, lecture. So... Today, we're going to talk about uh, the dynamics of managing acute post-operative pain in the current inpatient healthcare opioid crisis environment. And we have a very talented uh, group of individuals. For myself, from a disclosure standpoint, um, I have the following disclosures to make as listed on the slide here. These are the learning objectives that we're going to try to a- accomplish through the entire program, and each individual will lecture for about 15 minutes, and then we want to be able to provide ample time for questions and answers. These are the various course topics and the presenters that go with each one. I'll be presenting the current strategies and options to manage in-hospital acute, moderate to severe postoperative pain. Dr. T.J. Gann will talk about the ERIS, the enhanced recovery after surgery, moving towards the standard of care. Dr. Rami Bin Joseph will t- will tell us about health economics and outcomes research related to the in-hospital acute, moderate to severe post-operative pain. Dr. Robert Barkin, uh, will tell us about the impact of the scheduled analgesics versus non-scheduled analgesics related to the management of in-hospital acute post-operative pain, and then finally, Dr. Rafa is going to give us a little teaser about some of the new options for the management of moderate to severe in-hospital acute uh, pain management that are on the horizon. So, you know, we could look at various definitions of acute pain, and we do know that. Um, acute pain does uh, differ from chronic pain. A lot of the efforts at Pain Week over the last decade or so have really been focused on chronic pain. It's important to realize the role that acute pain has and how important it is for us to be um, managing uh, acute pain um, very early in an adequate and appropriate manner, particularly uh, based on the intensity of that pain. And there are a lot of similarities uh, in the sense that we try to incorporate a multidisciplinary, multimodal type of opportunity for our patients, whether that is seen in the uh, postoperative or perioperative period or even in your office when we're dealing with very common types of issues like low back pain. And I think you're going to start to see various articles now talking about um, what may be uh, the best approach to treating uh, conditions like uh, new onset of low back pain, et cetera. And there are some differences with uh, Managing the goals, at least for and expectations, for acute versus chronic pain. With chronic pain, we're always focusing on decreasing the pain, but improving uh, functionality, quality of life, and other metrics like patient satisfaction, and really getting the patient back to, um, to to being whole again. Understanding that we may not eliminate the pain totally. With acute pain, we're going to be more focused on adequate and appropriate management and removal or mitigation of that pain now that sometimes can be problematic from a patient perspective if you look at the various baps that are out there belief attitude and perception surveys of patients patients know that they're going to have acute post-operative pain after they have a surgical uh, encounter Um, but a lot of them do have some unrealistic expectations that uh, may be driven by marketing campaigns uh, like uh, painless surgery, et cetera. So um, this is the goal, obviously, for us to be able to achieve that, but setting appropriate expectations is important, and doing that in a manner which, uh, particularly in a hospital setting, allows us to effectively uh, transition the patient through up to discharge is important. But having uh, adequate plans for the management of patients when they come home so that they do not return back to the hospital because of pain are um, important because of the new health care measures and episodic care. So these advances in, um, or new advances in acute postoperative pain medicine are, are looking at <clears throat> trying to address some of the <clears throat> main challenges that we find. And what we have to realize as well is that there is a fair amount of number of, of, of cases, over 70 million of them based on the CDC's National Survey Report, that are done as outpatient or ambulatory. And so this means that we need to be managing from a distance. Patients may be with us for a short period of time and then go home and need to have their medications uh, administered at home. And we're looking at lots of different ways of doing that, including Uh, some very novel delivery systems, extended release options of various drugs, and even medical devices. The use of a multimodal analgesic regimen does bring uh, various um, opportunities and advantages. And what we try to do with these pharmacological and non-pharmacological combinations is reduce the overall um, exposure of any one particular drug to a patient um, while we try to leverage potential additive, super additive, or synergistic um, analgesic responses. Now, sometimes we do this on a pure polypharmacy standpoint with a multi-mechanistic analgesic regimen, taking different types of uh, medications that are going to affect pain along the pain pathways differently and leveraging that. Uh, The assumption is that by combining two agents, you may be able to reduce the dose of either one. But what we find is that through isobolographic determinations, this is not always true, that um, we don't always get an additive, super additive, or synergistic analgesic effect. And sometimes we may actually put our patients in more harm because uh, we're increasing the potential risk of side effects. Not only that, we have to be cognizant when we use multi-mechanistic analgesic regimens that there are clinically relevant pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic drug-drug interactions that we have to be aware of. You know, when we use analgesics, we want the on-target effect, but analgesics also have other pharmacodynamic effects that are inherent to their uh, actions, and these extrinsic um, activities, these off-target activities, manifest as adverse events, so we want to make sure that When we do different types of combinations that we're trying to avoid that. And overall, we do want to try to aggressively, adequately mitigate or reduce or remove pain whenever possible. So if you look at pain, it is a complex, uh, multifactorial, ideological representation, particularly postoperative pain and appropriate management then should include a multimodal, multimechanistic multi-mechanistic analgesic therapeutic approach. And this just goes to some of the things that we've always known as well, that attacking pain along different pla- places of the pain pathway um, may allow us to have a better or op- more optimal management. And this does not just have to be achieved through the use of um, analgesics, but can be used with devices and other types of uh, complementary alternative medicine uh, opportunities like acupuncture, et cetera. Some of the basic components of synergistic uh, analgesic regimens are listed here. And again, both interventional procedures, um, procedures that uh, are going to look at using different types of uh, techniques, uh, local infiltration. Um, This in combination with what our surgical colleagues are doing uh, on the other side of the uh, ether uh, screen um, have all led to improvements in uh, postoperative care. And the management of the perioperative pain. And the management of acute pain in a postoperative setting is very much uh, looked at from a quality measurement standpoint. Dr. Ben Joseph will give you some more insight, and so will Dr. Barkin on this. But, you know, we're all being judged constantly, not just by our patients and the outcomes that we have, uh, also by our colleagues but we're being judged by the payers and um, the individuals who grant licenses, et cetera. So it is important to realize that with these new healthcare measures, uh, things like value-based purchasing, et cetera, that these quality metrics are definable. And there's been a lot of question about this, uh, particularly when it came to uh, pain as the fifth vital sign in the hospital setting with Jayco and using uh, mandatory um, pain scores and mandatory reassessing of pain. And again, this is an area that needs more input from practitioners uh, and clinicians uh, like yourself to help our regulatory and legislative individuals understand the value of improved patient outcomes. Analgesic gaps are one area that we should be very cognitive of and focus. And analgesic gaps can fall broadly under the term of oligoanalgesia, where we are treating pain but not adequately. And the analgesic gaps um, often occur during patient transition services when they're going from one unit to another or they pack you up to the floor. A third of the patients um, wish to restart the PCA after 24 hours of cessation. That's interesting. You know, by definition, now I was just talking to Dr. Barkin in his hospital. Uh, two days is, I think, the norm, and then patients are out uh, of the hospital. You know, most patients are not being kept in the hospital longer than that. And if they are being kept in the hospital because of the assumption of pain, it's usually because it's a moderate to severe or severe type of post operative pain. So it's based on that type of intensity. So the real question is how can we effectively? manage their pain so that they can transition to the home. And Dr. Gann's going to tell us a little about what they're doing on a national level to figure that out. A bigger question, when I recently met with the analgesic division at the FDA on an uh, in-hospital analgesic, they want to know, well, if you give a medication in the hospital, what is the chance of a patient not using, let's say, an opioid postoperatively? You know, so let's say you have great analgesic coverage in the hospital, it's rock solid, no problems, but now they're being discharged and they're afraid, you know, what what happens from that point on? Particularly with the uh, recognition of the opioid crisis and how uh, we have to keep that uh, public health issue top of mind and some data, some which I presented yesterday which could suggest that the longer you're on an opioid postoperatively, the more chance that you go down this continuum of dependence and other things that we'd like to avoid. And, you know, when we look at this uh, opportunity for PCA versus intermittent dosing, we know that PCAs now are a little easier in hospitals. They, they come with programmed libraries, so you basically scan the bag and put it in there, and a lot of error, etc. cetera, has been taken out of it. And there are um, advantages of having patient-controlled analgesia. But we also have the... long-acting local anesthetics that are currently on the market and more being developed that we need to consider and see how that fits into these paradigms. When we do look at peaks and trouts that are created by IV bolus dosing, we have to think about some of the newer concepts that are out there. You know, when we do have these peaks and trouts, one, particularly when it comes to non anti-inflammatories, do we really need to have that much systemic exposure? Dr. Raffer and I have published papers that have looked at... um, tissue kinetics as opposed to plasma levels when it comes to the effectiveness of NSAIDs, particularly in these acute pain models. So we have to ask ourselves, do we, are we using a sledgehammer to hit a tack right now when we're giving these big bolus doses? And then we're going to have peaks. And then what happens at the end when patients start to feel pain? Is there some form of temporal summation or stepping up? Is that why the next dose doesn't really last as long or produce the same type of analgesic effect. These are all things that we're going to be looking at in this new era of drug development, and I applaud the FDA. They recently came out with two new guidance documents, one for PKPD modeling that was just released uh, beginning of this week. I suggest you all take a look at that if you do drug development. And announcements yesterday by Dr. Gottlieb of a rehauling of the um, analgesic uh, guidance documents. So we're in for very exciting times when it comes to uh, postoperative pain, when it comes to acute and chronic pain and analgesic development. We look at post-operative acute pain and its transition to chronic pain. And these data here, uh, again, just to highlight some of the things that we know, and again, sort of calls to action the responsibility for us to be to evaluate their pain and aggressively, adequately, appropriately reduce the pain as best as we can and get them ready <clears throat> to transition to more of an outpatient setting where they're going to self-manage or they're going to be managed by uh, non-qualified healthcare providers, i.e. family members. <clears throat> so with that, I'm going to uh, turn our program over to our next speaker, and that is Dr. T.J. Gann. Uh, Dr. T.J. Gann is going to discuss enhanced recovery after surgery, moving forward towards standard of care. For those who do not know T.J. Gann, uh, T.J. Gann is the uh, chairman and professor at Stony Brook University uh, for the Department of Anesthesiology. He is a a world-renowned expert in uh, perioperative care, which uh, which includes uh, additional expertise in analgesic Uh, management of patients in the perioperative period. I'm very honored to have TJ here, uh, particularly at our inaugural acute pain launch. So I thank you, and I wish you all to welcome TJ to the stage.
1: Thank you very much, uh, Joe. Good morning, everyone. Judged by the size and the room and the audience, looks like you are have had some interest in this acute pain track. Um, Now, this is the first time I attend Pain Week, and I was amazed that the number of participants, um, I know that the meeting has been uh, for the last 12 years, and and again, I want to congratulate uh, Dr. Pergolisi for organizing a wonderful meeting. Now, this topic may be new to many of you, so before I start, let me ask you who have heard of enhanced recovery in a room? Maybe 40, 30, 40 percent. Who in your hospital have an enhanced recovery program? Maybe fewer, 10, 15 percent. So I'm going to tell you this is an area that if you haven't, does not, or if your hospital does not have an enhanced recovery program, you need to go back and think about starting one, because this is where the future healthcare, at least in the perioperative setting, is going to go. And I think that if you don't think about it and set it up, and again, there are other advantages which I'm going to share with you, but it is what I call a low-hanging fruit, and those of you who have done enhanced recovery and see the results of enhanced recovery, it really, as I, the title suggests, I think it's going to be, standard of care in a not-too-distant future. So with that, uh, I'm going to uh, move on. This is my uh, disclosure. So why are we talking about enhanced recovery after surgery? And what is enhanced recovery after surgery? Now, many of you know the traditional care model that we are familiar with, is very siloed. I'm an anesthesiologist, and I do acute pain. And often I have no idea what my surgeons do in the operating period. As anesthesiologist, we drop the patient off in the PACU, and you say, okay, what is the next patient, right? Until when you hear your surgeon sometimes tell you, you know that Mrs. Smith that you took care of a week ago? Mr. Smith is still in the hospital who had a minor, fairly minor procedure, who should be out of hospital in two or three days. Now, we often have no idea why Mr. Smith is in the hospital. And I would say that some of the reasons why Mr. Smith is in the hospital may be resulted from your care in the operating room. And that is why I think Enhanced Recovery offers an opportunity for us to work as a team. It's an interdisciplinary, multimodal concept. It's a new concept, it's a new paradigm because this is not what we are used to. The surgeon had no idea what we do across the ether screen, what I call the blood brain barrier. Blood on the other side, brain on the other side. Any surgeons in the room? But it represents a new paradigm shift. It is getting the evidence that we already have, practicing evidence-based medicine brings evidence-based medicine into real practice rather than I'm going to wait for the next bigger trial before I implement the result of this trial. And it's comprehensive because it takes the patient from the beginning of their conversation with the surgeon all the way through their surgery into post-operative care. Think about it, if you are going to have surgery or your loved one going to have surgery, don't you want someone who really knows how to take care of these perioperative patients? Don't you want someone who are comprehensive about each phase of the care? And that is what enhanced recovery is about. So let's just take a a little look at what was the historical perspective of enhanced recovery. Where did it all come from? Now, you heard the buzzword about ERAS, enhanced recovery after surgery. American Society of Anesthesiologists have this uh, uh, perioptic surgical home model, PSH model. You can call it whatever you like, but the principles is fairly simple. And it really started off about 20 years ago by this surgeon called Hendrik Kellett. He's a colorectal surgeon, no longer in practice, but certainly has done a lot of work on enhanced recovery 20 years ago. 20 years ago, he published this paper in the Lancet. He was a colorectal surgeon. He was trying to challenge perioperative care. Now, you may remember, in those days, after colorectal procedures, we will routinely wait for bowel sound to come back, right? Before you take the nasogastric tube out, before you start feeding, you always want to hear the bowel sound, right? So he did something that is totally out of the box, totally against standard of care in those days. He fed patients before bowel sound came back. And in those days, almost all the surgeons said, this guy is practicing outside the fringe of conventional medicine. Who gave food or drinks before the bowel sound comes back? No one. But... In this publication, he recruited nine consecutive patients and implemented a, what he called a fast-track protocol, which is similar to what we taught enhanced recovery today. Now, if you look at a regimen, what does it focus on? A lot on pain, a lot on fluid management, a lot about getting patients up and about after surgery. A lot about challenging the bowel after surgery. Epidural analgesia, avoid opioids, multimodal analgesia. This is what we are talking about. Avoid putting drains. In those days, everyone had an NG tube after bowel surgery. Today, almost no one has an NG tube after routine bowel surgery. Avoid putting drains in. Take the urinary catheter out, all the tubes. If you can get the tubes out as early as possible, the earlier the patient can get on their recovery, the less risk of infections. So practicing all this, this is what he found. Nine consecutive patients, right? Not bad to get a publication in the Lancet for nine patients, right? So these nine consecutive patients, and he found that implementing this protocol, he was able to get a patient to drink on post-op day one. Six patients had bowel movement on post-op day one, two on post-op day two. No vomiting, two patients had slight nausea. Patient out of bed, median of six to eight hours on post-op day one and day two. Impressively, six patients were discharged on post-op day two, the rest on post-op day three. Now, this was 20 years ago. It's still pretty impressive by today's standard. On average, bowel surgery, Patients stay for three, five, six, seven days. So by challenging dogma, he was able to show this incredible result by focusing on each step of the patient recovery process. So these are some of the elements of enhanced recovery. And again, we don't have time to talk about all these elements, but suffice to say, there are some important elements, and what I consider pain management is probably one of the most critical ones. If you can get the pain management right you have a high success rate of achieving enhanced recovery. Now, Dr. Pergolisi talked about this risk of opioid. Again, we know that every day, about 100 people die because of opioid overdose. Now, you may say that, okay, these are all chronic opioid abuse, nothing to do with acute setting. Not so fast. This recent study suggests that perhaps one in 10 Patients reported becoming addicted to opioids following surgery. One in ten. Ten percent of the patient potentially could become addicted and potentially die from the opioid prescription following surgery. Now, this is something we've got to think about because we may have created that. The surgeons may have created that by giving a large number of pills. You may recall having minor procedures, And you get 60 to 90 Percocet, Vicodin, and you may take a few, and then the rest, what happened In the medicine cupboard, right? And other people can have free flow of some of these opioids. So what are we trying to achieve here? Now, what we are trying to achieve really is to try to provide a comprehensive pain management strategy. And this is one of the consensus guidelines that we got together we form a society called uh, the organization called Perioperative Quality Initiative, and the aim of that organization is to periodically come together and provide some guiding principle and consensus guidelines for clinicians. And again, you can see that part of this protocol is providing non opioid analgesic, non steroidal, acetaminophen, gabapentinoids, local anesthetic, blocks, dexamethasone. So we do have a number of very effective analgesic that we have, we can use in a perioperative setting. And the question is, how often do we adopt that? No doubt, many of you understand the principles, but when you come to actually prescribing it, unless you have it protocolized in an order set, often it is being left out. So, what is, a, what is our aim in trying to achieve in the optimal analgesia after surgery? So there are already three aims. One is to optimize patient comfort. At the same time, having the fastest functional recovery with fewer side effects. And that really are the aims. And I would say to any of you who practices enhanced recovery, if you can live these post-operative dreams So what does post-operative dream stand for? D for drinking, E for eating, A for analgesia, M for mobilizing after surgery, and S for sleeping. Now, if you can achieve these five elements, you have a well-running, successful, and recovery. Think about it. If patient can achieve these five things, they don't need to be in the hospital. They should get out of the hospital and get onto their recovery road. So, lastly, just want to present to you: this is an enhanced recovery protocol that we started when I was at Duke University, probably in uh, almost like seven, eight years ago now. Now, at that time, it turns out that it was one of the earliest enhanced recovery protocol, and it all came because Hendrik Hallett. I mentioned to you, we have been good friends for many years. And at one of the meetings, he challenged me. He said, you guys in the U.S. is practicing in the medieval ages. We have been doing enhanced recovery for many years. So I said, okay, Hendrik, I'm going to go back to my institution. I'm going to start enhanced recovery, and the rest is history. So using this fairly simple protocol, preoperatively, Educate patients, screening for malnutrition, again, something that we don't do very well. Carbohydrate drink to try to avoid patients uh, from starving for 12 hours. ASA says you can drink clear fluid after two hours before surgery. And therefore, we actually allow patients to drink clear fluid up to two hours before surgery. And many of you in your hospital still NPO by mouth from midnight. Intraoperatively, Two, three major components. Analgesic management, either using a regional blockade, multimodal analgesia, reduce opioids. Fluid management is another critical component and trying to avoid some of the drains that you routinely put in patients. Postoperatively, fairly simple. Get the patient up and about. Get the patient to eat and drink as early as possible. Optimize analgesia, optimize fluid. That is... All you need to do, and its outcome is remarkable. Let me share with you some of the outcomes. This is length of stay for colorectal procedures. Overall, you save two days length of stay. Two days. It's huge. If you can save two days for each patient, imagine how many hospital beds it free up. And that means that a hospital can then admit these additional patients. Some were done open, some were done laparoscopic. And even laparoscopic procedures, we were still able to save on average two days by using enhanced recovery principles. And that is remarkable. And that can be achieved in any of your hospitals if you work together as a team to establish enhanced recovery. Look at some other outcome. Fluid management, instead of giving too much fluid, which we tend to do, making patients edematous. And I almost see patients sometimes who had long procedures, who had liters and liters of crystalloid. What did they look like postoperatively? They look like a Michelin man, right? And you could imagine if you can see edema on the outside the bowels, edema is going to take days for them to recover. So you are giving a lot of fluids, and some of them you need to admit the patient with in intensive care and let them pee for the next few days. What rationale is that? Bowel recovery from two days to on the same day of surgery, we're starting them to drink. Infection is less. Re-emission is also lower. What about pain? Pain score as a result of multimodal analgesia with the use of regional technique, higher than average pain score was significantly lower. And more impressively, if you look at opiate consumption, it's about four times reduction in your morphine equivalent in the post-operative period. Four times And by reducing the opiate consumption, you reduce the risk of post-op ileus and other opiate-related adverse events. Now, this is where your administrator would love to see the cost curve, right? We were able to show that on average, each patient, if you do enhanced recovery, you save more than $2,000 per patient. And in about 25, 30% of patients, that saving is over $4,000. Think about it. If each of the patients you can save between two and $4,000, if you are doing a lot of these procedures, three, 400 procedures, it's into the hundreds or thousands. And this is where your administrator, before you start enhanced recovery, you should engage them so that you actually see the benefit of your hard work and effort. Without engaging them, they were you on the back, said, thank you for doing that, and you do not get recognized. So you should engage them, ask for the resource you may need in order to have a successful enhanced recovery program. So in summary, post complications are c- very costly, and unfortunately, it's com- more common than we would like to see. Enhanced recovery integrates evidence-based practice into routine perioperative care, and this is what you get if you practice enhanced recovery and if your enhanced recovery program is successful. You can decrease length of stay, decrease complication rate, decrease, decrease variability of care. Anytime you reduce variability, you improve quality. We have seen that in automobile industry. Decrease healthcare costs. Promote teamwork. Again, promoting teamwork is difficult to measure, but I think it's Priceless, just like the MasterCard commercial, right? Priceless. More importantly, increased quality, and more importantly, value. This is really what we're trying to strive for, value for the healthcare dollar that we spend. Increasing quality at reducing costs. Thank you very much for your attention.
0: Thank you very much, Dr. Gann. What a wonderful way to kick off uh, this inaugural track. Um, now I'm going to have the privilege of introducing Dr. Rami Bin joseph one of the uh, <coughs> world-leading healthcare economics and research uh, researchers out there, uh, extensive background in uh, pharmacology and health economics and outcomes research, and he's going to tell us about using real-world data in evaluation of postoperative pain in inpatient setting.
2: Thank you, Dr. Pergolizzi, and thank you, Dr. Gunn, for your presentation. Hey, good morning, everybody. So, Dr. Gunn talked about your administrator. How often do you have you had an experience that you come to your administrator with an idea, and he goes, oh, that sounds just about right. <laughs> you need data. However, often we use clinical trials data. We use data from randomized clinical trials, and they're not exactly what you do in, re- in regular practice. Do you remember Mrs. Smith from Dr. Gunn's presentation, the one who's still in the hospital, still waiting to be discharged? You don't really know what's going on, and you need to find other ways to evaluate treatment patterns and come up with evidence that can, cha- can help you implement enhanced recovery program or program that looks at a reduction of opioids consumption post-surgery. Uh, I'm a consultant with Momentum uh, Hand with NIMA Research. And in this presentation, at the end of it, you should be able to understand and describe what are real world data, how are they different than randomized clinical trials, what are the strengths and limitations of those real world data, and what do you actually need to measure if you're trying to make a point to your administrator and try to implement a change in your institution. Uh, my presentation is based upon a report of the International Society of Pharmacoeconomics and Outcomes Research. And let's talk about the data landscape. We all know about preclinical trials, early phase, pivotal trials, first 3B, and phase 4 trials. Great trials, very, very informative, but most of them are designed for very, very specific purposes. They're very strict Inclusion criteria, exclusion criteria, very strong protocol-driven. And in many cases, they're actually very different than how you practice pain and how you practice medicine. So what are real-world data? You have a definition. I'm going to share with you several definitions. And they're basically trying to say the same thing. Those are situations where the researchers doesn't really control the intervention. You're trying to replicate or assess real-world settings and letting the physician do what they usually do in their regular practice. Uh, Real-world data are often needed by payers. If you go to a payer only with randomized clinical trial, you're most likely going to get questions about, how does it affect my institution? My physicians are behaving differently. And you need to have those data my simple definition of real-world data is almost is as simple as it is anything that is not a randomized clinical trial. That's just a simple definition. Usually works. You'll hear about it in very, very different names. You'll hear them referred to as prospective observational study, non-interventional observation, database study, prospective registries, ret- retrospective registries, and electronic medical record analysis. All of those are names of different types of real-world data. Again, I talked about the uh, different perspectives, and again, it is an umbrella term that refers to anything that is not a randomized trial. Let's talk about value, if you have to deal with your administrator. What is value? Value is like beauty. It's whatever you want it to be. You might look at a beautiful painting and look, oh, this is amazing. I went to the Metropolitan a few weeks ago, and there was this huge painting of White. I didn't understand it. I didn't get it. But I thought it was very, very expensive. (laughs) Well, it's very valuable, but not for me. So when you think about value, think about your audience. What do they care about? If your administrator is the one who's making the decision, are they going to care about the patient productivity loss? Are they going to worry about the cost for the entire hospital? Are they going to worry about one specific department? If you're trying to get a new drug on formulary and you talk to the pharmacy director, are they going to c- care about the budget to just their pharmacy? Maybe that's it. Maybe that's really what matters to them. Are they going to worry about the budget for the entire hospital? And what if it's part of a larger healthcare system? Are they going to worry about value as part of the outpatient settings in addition to the inpatient settings? So when you try to develop an evaluation, think about your audience. Try to understand what is the message that you're trying to communicate. Make sure that you design the message in a way that is not too complex, and your audience can understand it. Often you go into real-world data, you go into health economics. It's kind of very, very easy to go into very complex details, and you lose the audience. So try to make sure that you understand the audience, be very clear about what is value, and try to tell them what is relevant to them. I'll focus about different types of outcomes. There are the economic outcomes. There are direct medical, that are exactly what's happening to the patient. There are the direct non-medical, that includes transportation, for example, ambulance service, and you have indirect, such as loss of productivity for the patients, or loss of productivity for the caregiver. Again, think about your audience. Are they going to care about that? Is that relevant for them? We all know about mobility and mortality, However, often people confuse that with quality of life or patient-reported outcomes. They are not the same. Patient might have a certain level of mobility, but they might be able to function just just well and have no impact on the quality of life. Although, on the first of it, they have a significant level of mobility. So, think about all of those endpoints. What are the benefits of real-world data? In clinical trials, you get efficacy. You get protocol-driven, very carefully selected groups of patients, and you get great data about efficacy. In real-world data, you're getting effectiveness. You can study multiple intervention. You can look into long-term benefits and harms. You can look at diverse population. And you can basically measure everything that makes sense. You're not restricted to just one primary hypothesis or one primary endpoint. You can look at resource usage, quality of life, and so on. And sometimes you have to use a real-world study when it's just not possible to do a randomized clinical trial. You might be looking at a rare event that is hard to find the patient, or you might be looking at a situation when you can't get patients to start smoking if you want to study smoking. So there are many uses for those trials. Limitation, they're not as strong. Randomized clinical trials are much more stronger. There are great statistical techniques. It's very easy to analyze them. And your audience usually is trained to understand those kind of data. It's easy to explain them. In real-world data, with moving into more advanced statistics. It's hard to explain. There's a selection bias, and they're not simple. I'm going to skip a few slides so I can stay online on time. So I'm going to show you, if you're looking at the clinical trials, that looking at post-surgical care, what do you need to do? in inpatient settings. Total cost of treatment, that would be cost for the entire hospital, or if it's a healthcare system, this could be cost for the entire healthcare system. Cost of pharmaceuticals that's right to the pharmacy director. Cost of laboratories, cost of the procedures, cost of treating adverse events. If you have an issue with constipation, for example, you have to measure that. If you have an intervention that takes more time of the nursing staff, you have to measure that. But again, you shouldn't be stopping just at the discharge point. It's very common and very important to continue following patients at least 30 days post-discharge and see what has happened to them after they were discharged. If you're trying to implement an opioid free anesthesia, how many of those patients are continuing to be opioid free after surgery and how many of them are now back on opioids? You have to think about those endpoints. In conclusion... I'm not trying to say that randomized clinical trials are not relevant. Randomized clinical trials are absolutely essential and provide the building blocks and the foundation for our understanding of medicine. However, real-world data provide us that other perspective that helps us to understand what happens when your physician in the regular practice is working on a patient, what happens to the patients and to the economics of the treatment. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you. Again, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Ben Joseph. Excellent lecture. And uh, you do know that the slides are available for all of uh, these um, on your jump drive. So if uh, there are any individuals who want additional uh, slides or references, please feel free to uh, speak to the uh, faculty. It's with great pleasure that I introduce a longtime friend and colleague of mine, an expert in, uh, in pharmacology, as well as operational managements in patient settings in hospitals and institutions. Uh, Dr. Robert Barkin is going to describe the dynamics of managing acute postoperative pain in the current opioid-sparing environment, and we've asked him to give a case presentation as well, so I hope that this is uh, very dynamic and you enjoy it. Bob, thank you. Thank you.
3: I frankly have no idea who he's talking about, do you? All right. Quick question. How many of you are currently involved daily in treating post-operative pain? Good. Okay. Thank you. So what I'm going to say may reflect the standards there. How many of you at your hospitals have a pre-surgical, very sophisticated, I want to say inventory, before the patient is seen for surgery. I'm not talking the hour before, maybe days. Okay, and that's growing. Thank you. We're going to talk about that. My disclosures: I pay taxes. <laughs> I have two daughters with PhDs in spending, but cannot discriminate on sale from for sale. <laughs> the learning objectives are written down for you. What are we looking at? Timely, pre-surgical discussion and a structured decremental change where opioid naive, that's where the seven days come in, versus an opioid tolerant patient. Create a patient-specific, patient-focused, patient-centered, personalized care plan for them. You have a world of generic drugs. You have no generic patients. They're all individual. They bring something different to the party. The pathways, we know, transduction, transmission, that sort of thing. We have to cover that, and I talk about that with the patient. Scheduled analgesia versus anesthesia. I said, I guarantee and promise you, you will have pain after surgery because during surgery, your doctor promised you no pain. He was telling you the truth. He got anesthesia, but (laughs) anesthesia does not equal analgesia. So we're going to decrease pain in quality and intensity, but we're not going to take it away. Why? Patient expectations are up here to be pain-free, not gonna happen. I could put you out on fantasy Island with Tattoo ringing the bell, but that's not going to be effective for you and your family. So what you promise is what you have to deliver. What are we gonna focus? Diminish pain and suffering in quality and quantity, through scheduled analgesic prescription plans, diminish fear and anxiety. Many of the patients have fear and anxiety, and they're not going to surface it until they build up a collegial relationship with you, one of trust and confidence. If they do share then they're going to tell you about their pain uh, and, and improve their post-op functionality, their activities of daily living, so they can do better in PT and OT, their performance. Personal and past experiences and preferences. They may even bring in their friends on their experiences and what they're afraid of. Diminish pharmacotherapy, iatrogenic insults, uh, and address nociceptive, neuropathic, inflammatory, central, visceral, whatever the pain issues are. And reduce the, the length of stay. And that which is facilitated by initiating a structured, time contingent, scheduled dosage regimen, addressing these focused events, predict and control. If you can predict what the patient's needs, you can control the outcome. Without predictive mechanisms, you lose the game. Initially, past medical history, a thorough one, not the one that ends up on your little electronic medical record. No patient goes to one hospital and sees one physician. They go to Mo, Larry, Curly, and Shep, and whoever else is out there, and you've got to bring all that together. Their past surgical history, important. Uh, Their past psychiatric history, often denied. Are you depressed? No, crazy people are depressed. I'm just hopeless, helpless, worthless, loss of self-esteem, and suicide, isolation, guilt, but I'm not depressed, Dr. Birkin. So you've got to be able to come it out and how you package it. Uh, their social history, do they drink, what the stories are, nicotine, cannabis, social recreational drugs. Uh, I have my card for marijuana, Doctor Burke, and I hear this, you know, all the time. Can I use it in the hospital? No, you can't use it in the hospital. And you've all had this, haven't you? They're prescription history. They're prescribed meds. They're over the counter meds, which are used. And then I use the word phytopharmaceuticals. What phytopharmaceuticals are you on? What do I expect them to say? What? And they all do. What are phytopharmaceuticals? They're medications from plants or herbs. Oh. While I'm on garlic, ginger, ginkoba, feverfew, and ginseng, those all cause bleeding. We'll talk about that later. All right. So that's important. What herbal meds are they using? They're allergies versus side effects. I have patients that come in with ID say, I'm allergic to morphine. What happened? I had constipation and it had to be d- digitally removed. Not an allergy. When they talk about anaphylaxis or you know some major Stevens Johnson, allergy, but not not that. Versus side effects, predictable events. Please look at the patient prescription monitoring plan. I do, I do before every visit. If I see a patient on a 30-day cycle, it's done before each visit. They're multi-source medications. They're old prescriptions. They don't throw their meds out. My patients call them their armament. They're all along the room in their bathroom on the ledge. You know, some of them are from, you know, 1847 for all I know. But in any event, they're old, but they don't. But I had a copay. I won't get rid of them. All right? Uh, take a look at what their friends are giving them as a way of information. The spouses. I love a spouse when they come to the intervention because the spouse tells the truth. You know, the the men, do you snore? No. And then he gets on And the ribs, what do you mean I snore? I sleep downstairs every night on the couch. You do? I didn't know that. So anyway, you've got to be able to get that down, uh, especially for the snoring. What they've done on the Internet, external travel to the U.S., laboratory, EKG evaluations, and above all, what's going on with their QTC prolongation. Multimodal pharmacotherapy, we've heard it over and over. A structured, scheduled regimen, overlapping intervals. PRNs are for breakthrough pain to decrease the higher doses of what you're doing Schedulely, comorbid painful syndromes and diagnosis, which patients often try to amalgamate. When they see you, You you're at post-op surgery. What are you going to do? And they've had a knee. What are you going to do about my back, my shoulder? What are you going to do about my Crohn's, my IBS? What about my migraine, my fibromyalgia, my osteoarthritis? I said, I'm only here to correct the surgery. I have no magic wand. I tell them my little granddaughter took her magic wand to Montessori today. I'd love to have it, but I can't wave it and it's going to go away. But they expect more. Expectations, very important, expectations. Bring their expectations down to where you can deliver the goods because that's how you're judged. And then, of course, you can use Neurolaxal opioids, uh, epidural steroid injections, and the intrathecal route. Pharmacotherapy, a broad base of agents that you can use for the patients, whether it's acetaminophen, NSAIDs, for example, scheduled ketorolac by the IV dose, or PONSAIDs. They can have anesthetics, antidepressants that are SNRIs. Tizanid, dunarfenidine, if you need them for skeletal muscle relaxants, NMDA receptor antagonists such as ketamine and magnesium, nitrous oxide, uh, nitric oxide, excuse me, nitrous oxide, uh, and dextromethorphan. opioids, the oral route, or I don't like to take meds. Well, we have meds for the buccal route then. So you find out what their needs are, all right? And then we're going to talk about that in the cases. Scheduled doses with limited short-acting agents for breakthrough pain. Anesthetics, such as sodium channel blockers, shorter long-acting topical agents, micro-needle patches, and treatment plan has to have an exit. Ex-military. We all have to have an exit strategy. So the exit strategy, 5 to 7 to 10 days after surgery, depending upon the type of surgery and how involved it was, or surgeries, if it's trauma, would be appropriate. Extensive procedures, that simulate uh, home routines such as, or where they're going to extended care facilities or nursing homes are very, very applicable. What are they going to be doing at home? How are they going to be keeping in contact with you? Time contingent plans, what time you get up, what time you go to sleep? Do you have nocturia? What periods of the day do you want the most pain relief? Periods of antecedent pain, cover it. Will their insurance and their PBMs allow it? Which is an important issue that we've all come across with prior auths and Peer to peer things and all that, making things a little bit, little bit, greatly difficult for us. It takes 40 minutes to do a prior auth. Time schedule for decremental change, the lowest effective dose to participate in home, a patient without precipitating abstinence or withdrawal behavior. Stop all former historical meds. Take that one home to the bank. Put that on the label of the meds that you prescribe. Stop all your pain meds you had at home unless you contact us personally. Otherwise, well, I'll take a little of this and I'll take a little of that. I have some Dr. Barker. It's been discontinued for nine years. But anyway, they'll keep it up. So please be careful with it. Uh, and then maintain bilateral open dialogue with the patient, the family, and the caregiver following hospital discharge. That's important. Now, every prescription says monitor. Who's doing the monitoring? Always remember that. Here's our first case, 49-year-old male, 73 inches tall, 270 pounds. What does he do for a living? He's got more letters after his name than Dr. Puglisi has. MBA, JD, CPA, he's the CEO of a 100-person, 100 180-person law firm. What are his hobbies? Running, basketball, biking, golf, etc. Pain score, 4 to 10 out of 10. It's a function of movement, comfortable. Uh, with 4 out of 10, achy, dull, neuropathic, nociceptive, past medical history. Migraine, hypercholesterolemia, GERD, obstructive sleep apnea, but he doesn't like his CPAP worn. So you have a danger there now. He doesn't like it. His wife says he takes it off. Thank God for his wife. Past surgical history, had an abdominal hernery from weightlifting, clavicle repair from sports injury, ankle because he was running. Allergies, no-none allergies to food allergies, environmental allergies, and no prescription side effects were reported. Social history, he's married, he's got two kids, children, what do I have to do with the meds when I send him home? I tell him to lock them up, lock up on the label. Alcohol, he confesses, one and a half ounces of whiskey a day, told him he has to stop. Nicotine, one cigar a day, seven days a week, must stop. Cannabis on the weekend only, one per day. Social recreation, this is what he admitted to. He opened the door, okay, and uh, He uh, he denies social recreational drug use. Past psychiatrists, uh, denies any uh, psychiatric episodes. He has the DIMS, what I call the DIMS, Disorders of of, uh, Initiating and Maintaining Sleep. He sleeps from 11 p.m. to 3 a.m. per day. My wife's first husband was like that. Uh, She's only been married once. Note, the spouse and the patient describe he's on the cell phone and the laptop all the time. He's got 180. A lawyer is working for him, and this is confirmed by house staff and nursing that he's always on his laptop. Over-the-counter tells us about ibuprofen, diphenhydramine, herbal medications, melatonin, past prescription history. Hydrocodone and oxycodone, he would alternate from two different physicians. So there may be a little issue there going home, don't you think? Stop, home, meds, put it in black and white. Okay. On, and then his labs, everything was fine, no problems. QTC was fine. EKG, inpatient treatment plan, PTOT, pharmacotherapy to transfer to an extended care facility uh, for PT and OP, and he was going to be OTB, OTD, out the door on the bus in two days. Patient needs, I put that in quote, are expressed. I do not want to ask for medication or buzz for the nurse for it. So I discussed a structured, time-contingent component to the treatment plan. You have to design it for him. He wants everything done automatically, just like he would in his office of 180 lawyers, like this. Okay? So we scheduled his prescription plan and full-scheduled the treatment plan with plans for breakthrough pain, use of PRNs to evaluate needs for outpatient, extended care facility, and nursing home, Use PRNs and request patients to follow up with the same PCP for opioids if needed for functionality. We call those physicians and say we no longer need to prescribe these agents any longer. Look at something like tramadol, we corrected the issue, or a a buprenorphine buccal patch or something, or for Nucenta, whatever. Small dose, you don't have to continuous Call us if he demands more than 7 to 10 days after this. We will take over. All right? That's important. Communicating with those docs that were prescribing hydrocodone and oxycodone because they weren't at the same hospital practices that we were. He was very good at what he did. All right? He got these people way out in the suburbs. Continue the present management of pre-surgery and ad gabapentinoids and smooth muscle relaxants, opioids, for only 5 to 7 days and he went home. So he is in charge of his environment at the office and wanted the same thing where he was. So we had to address those needs. What about case two? 61 year old female, 192 pounds, right hip fracture due to a fall at home while doing housework. Eight to nine on the pen, it's aching, throbbing, stabbing, 10 out of 10 when she moves. Past medical history, what you may expect. Osteoporosis, high cholesterol, diabetes that she only controls with diet. She has fibromyalgia, irritable bowel disease surgery surgical breast biopsy, total abdominal hysterectomy, and appendectomy. Allergies, six keto opioids. That's oxycodone, hydrocodone, hydromorphone. They gave her CNS, neuro, cardiovascular events, such as hypertension, genital urinary, and GI events. Past psych history, she denies. Aside from disorders of machining sleep, she was tearful about this fall and feels hopeless and helpless. Hmm. What's the hallmarks of depression? Hopeless, helpless, worthless, loss of self-esteem, suicide, validation, and guilt. All right, there's six of them right there. So, But she denies this. It's like the longest river in Egypt, denial. Social history, solitary living. She lives alone now. She drinks alcohol, only six ounces of wine each night. Because I asked her about the size of the glass she brings and how many tablespoons full are in it. She doesn't use cannabis, social recreational drugs, Nothing of the sort. She has one cat, not uncommon. Pass and the PPM was reviewed and was excellent. Her routine gets up at 6, goes to sleep at 10, and she has nocturia once that night. Prescription history. Stating she uses every other day an oral hypoglycemic, so she's less than compliant. She doesn't like to take meds. We have to go along with that. Over-the-counter drugs, D3, APAP, NSAIDs, not sure of the dose of the drugs. Herbal, here it was, garlic, gincobra, feverfew, and ginseng, all caused bleeding. Her mouth dropped, and we talked about it. She understands why she has to be off of those meds for a few weeks before coming in. Labs, everything fine. Her tests were excellent. She had no problem with it. Note She has a resistant to medication use. And why? She said, use reflects weakness. This was her Middle Western European background, she said. And she has a teenage grandchild who visits. What do I have to do? have to lock up meds and avoid opioids and get her on a plan where there is no weakness focus. So our plan, we stopped all the home use of OTC prescription meds. We stopped the herbals with the rationales given. Opioids long-acting every 8 to 12 hours that were abuse deterrent only, and we only gave her three days supply. Tylenol, 500 milligrams Q8, small-dose short-acting opioid for breakthrough pain in a patient's small dose IV opioids for pain, which was unresponsive to the treatment plan while in the hospital, and SNRI for pain. Notice how we package it. The woman is depressed, so this SNRI is for pain, and we showed her the index that's on there is for pain, and she felt better, all right? And uh, fibromyalgia, she had tearfulness, and so we had the social worker see the patient. Low-dose gabapentinoids, and she was uh, with scheduled NSAIDs and IV every six hours. Choices, PRN dosing only, that could be appropriate for her. We ask her, what would she like? Timed dosing of a prescription plan, stop the herbals and OTCs at home, a scheduled treatment plan with PRN for breakthrough pain, and refer back to the PCP within five days of outpatient post-op pain meds. So we like to get everybody on board. So we're all talking one, I want to say one song from one hymn book. Does that make sense? So we're all on the same page. That's it. Do I have
0: time? (laughs) time. All right, thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you very much, Bob. (laughs) And now I'd like to introduce Dr. Robert Raffa. Bob has been uh, faculty at Pain Week for a number of years, and uh, next year we're... um, contemplating a preclinical pathway for analgesics, and Bob has extensive uh, uh, background in that. used to be the CNS lead at uh, Janssen for the analgesics. Bob um, is usually very, very humble, but Bob is one of the individuals that actually helped define the mechanism of action of tramadol. So Grinnenthal had an idea, and Bob actually said, well, this is what it does. Um, you don't meet many people like that. So it's with great honor that I uh, introduce Professor and Dr. Robert uh, Raffa.
4: Thank you, Joe. Appreciate it.
0: Well, good morning, everybody.
4: It's a pleasure to be here again. And uh, I want to add my congratulations to Joe for putting together this new tract and uh, It's obvious that there's a lot of interest in this, and uh, what I would like to do is talk about some of the uh, compounds and ideas and things that are coming along, uh, as it says here, on the horizon. And the emphasis today is going to be both on the immediate horizon, some of the compounds that you're seeing in the posters and hearing about in the presentations, and also from my point of view, coming from drug discovery, the idea is that it's giving the preclinical people and drug discovery people about what they should be working on in terms of uh, the future. So uh, I would like to talk about uh, both of those things. So uh, is that me? Nothing to disclose? I thought there was quite a lot to disclose. So uh, I'll tell you in words. Uh, I used to work for Johnson & Johnson in drug discovery, and again, that influences the way I look at uh, the new compounds that are uh, coming to market and you'll hear about, and it gives me ideas about uh, what people should be working on, and I would also like to share a little insight about what goes on in drug discovery now that I have experience both in pharmaceutical companies and academia what are the drivers for the basic scientists? What are they working on? And what are the limitations? Uh, What are the things they're not working on and why not? And I think uh, it's important to know that and to um, appreciate uh, some of the limitations. Why, you know, we hear all the time, why aren't there better drugs? Why aren't there new discoveries? et cetera. So in terms of learning objectives, uh, we want to talk about some of the IV analgesics, again, primarily for the acute pain, post-surgical pain. But we're going to go uh, beyond that and include other things as well, talk a little bit about the pros and cons of each, and then talk about some additional uh, issues. So what were uh, some of the criteria used for inclusion There were some roles, and there was a lot of uh, uh, just uh, recognition that you couldn't possibly be all-inclusive. So we'll talk a little bit about the IVs because they have particular relevance to the topic. And we also uh, will talk about uh, non-opioid and multimodal compounds. And, again, that is sort of the overriding theme these days to decrease opioid use, so I am gonna emphasize those compounds, uh, but I wanna emphasize that this does not mean that we're excluding opioids from consideration. I always like to remember that the body evolved with an opioid system to sense and to modulate pain. And so in many ways, I view the non-opioids as compounds that are used in conjunction with opioids. If not with exogenously administered opioids, the patient is experiencing opioid administration by the endogenous opioids. So anything that we call a non-opioid or multimodal analgesic is automatically given in conjunction with opioids. Even if we don't do it, the body is doing it. But I want to concentrate on those that are uh, classified as non-opioid or uh, multimodal. Now, these drugs, for whatever the driving force, they've certainly greatly expanded the analgesic options, and I think... What today's session is doing is emphasizing that acute pain, we've heard it mentioned already, is fundamentally different than chronic pain. There are a lot of similarities, but there are differences. And this, I take great pleasure in that there's a renewed interest in acute pain. Because, again, for practical reason, in industry, the market was to chronic pain. And in academia, the holy grail was to find pain relief for neuropathic pain. You weren't gonna get tenure. You certainly are not gonna get an NIH grant to study NSAIDs and some of the common acute pain treatments. So I think it's, for whatever the driving force is, it's been wonderful for drug discovery and basic science in general. So I'm going to talk about a collection of, I think it's 12 uh, compounds, and I apologize if I left everybody out. I mean, every day there's new announcements at this meeting. One of the exciting things is you're hearing about new things uh, literally every day. And so I didn't leave it out intentionally, and hopefully we have time at the end of the symposium that if anybody wants to bring up their compound or add or... Say anything they want about any of these that I will be discussing, I think would be a wonderful opportunity to do that and I hope we can do that every year is have this an interactive thing so the first one I don't know if this was alphabetically or not, but acetaminophen, so it's now available as an intravenous uh administration, and um, what I find particularly interesting and what you know you could read about uh you know, what the pros are of such an approach. And by the way, as Joe mentioned, on every slide I have the web pages you can go to and get the, you know, the information, the detailed information. Uh, my emphasis is just to add from my experience and my background my thoughts on each of these. And the one that strikes me about uh, intravenous acetaminophen has to do with the mechanism of action of acetaminophen. It's one of our most widely used, one of the best analgesics for acute pain, and we really don't know how it works. I mean, there have been all sorts of ideas, and basically, as a new pain mechanism is discovered, it's said that acetaminophen works that way. It was originally said to be COX-1, then it was said to be COX-2, then it was said to be COX-3, And now there's other mechanisms. So what excites me about IV acetaminophen, in addition to the clinical uh, attributes, is that it might allow us to get some insight about how this drug is really working. Because it would be nice, wouldn't it, if we could find another acetaminophen that didn't have the toxicity, The problem, of course, is that we don't know how acetaminophen works, and in this day and age in the pharmaceutical companies and even in academia, they won't even begin to look at trying to find a better one because they can't set up a test tube assay to do it. And so we're really at a complete loss. And so at least with the IV, we can begin to look at those things. So as you know, there's two current sort of major views of how acetaminophen works. One is through a central mechanism, and we published long ago that there is an interaction between the brain and spinal cord in the action of acetaminophen. You need both. Acetaminophen cannot be explained by saying it works either on the brain or the spinal cord and not both. And the other sort of current popular idea, and they're not mutually exclusive, is that acetaminophen needs to be metabolized to a cannabinoid, and that's how it works. And so what really excites me about the IV, again, in addition to the clinical, is that it might help give us insight into how this drug is working. And then once we have better insight, then we have the targets to go after uh, a better one. So the next one is a local anesthetic, and this is sort of the exact opposite in terms of mechanism of action because we know exactly how the local anesthetics work. They block activity-dependent sodium channels, and so the mechanism is clear. The challenge is how do you administer these drugs so that they are, in fact, local. The only thing that makes them local is the way you administer them. And it's by the targeted local uh, administration that you separate the therapeutic effects from the adverse effects. So here's an example. Dr. Gann was talking about intraoperative approach. Here's one in which it's given directly during the surgery. And by the formulation, the the, uh, local anesthetic stays in the site. So again, you are decreasing the amount you have to give because some of it's not diffusing away. And the other thing that strikes me about this is notice that uh, they're, they're using um, uh, lipid uh, formulations, nanoparticles, and all those things with this drug and others. And this one's a liposomal suspension, and it reminds me that I think there's an untapped source out there for drug discovery and formulations, and that is in pharmacy school. You know, everybody knows about the clinical departments in pharmacy school, but every pharmacy school, or almost all, has a pharmaceutical sciences department that's usually almost as large as the clinical, and this is what they do. They have been doing this for many years. They could come up with, and have already, almost any formulation you would want. If you want your drug released two hours before the patient wakes, they have something. If you're worried about your child going to school with a tablet, they have formulations to take care of that. And so uh, if everybody isn't already aware of that, this is, I think, a tremendous, as I said, untapped source of all sorts of possibilities. If you, if you can identify a medical need, if you can think of it, they either already have it or they could quickly come up with it. And they're also very good, by the way, at protecting the IP around it. Uh, the meloxicam, uh, again, I find very interesting because maybe it's time now for a rebirth of studying and paying attention to NSAIDs. So, it is true that we know how they work, but we don't know enough to differentiate them. And, you know, I think Joe mentioned already about the tissue distribution, you know, the pH and in injury versus non injured t- tissue, et cetera. And it was about 1990 with the discovery of COX2. That basically I can tell you everybody in Discovery stopped working on new compounds because the large pharmaceutical companies were going to outcompete the smaller ones, and nobody in academia was studying the NSAIDs. So really in nineteen ninety that year marks the end, sort of the dark ages of NSAIDs. Really not much has been discovered or thought about them since then. So I think it's very exciting, and I think there's going to be a lot of discoveries that differentiate the different NSAIDs and uh, hopefully lead to uh, additional exciting things. Uh, alpha-2 agonists, dexmedetomidine, and others, uh, I always get very excited about. In this case, there's You know, the route of administration should offer some new possibilities. I can tell you in a laboratory, the two most reliable, consistent, rapid, high-efficacy pain relievers that work every single time, and there's only two, the opioids and alpha-2 agonists. The problem with the alpha-2 agonist is a couple things. One is a concern about cardiovascular effects, and the other is sedation. The cardiovascular effects have two components. One is a very practical one. If you're a pain physician and suddenly your patient has a cardiovascular problem, that's a big deal. You may not be able to handle that yourself. The other is, the assumption is that the cardiovascular effects always go with an alpha-2 mechanism. And wherever you read, people still believe that. But I could tell you we had compounds that were pain relievers, had no effect on heart rate, but they did on blood pressure, or were pain relievers, had effect on blood pressure and not heart rate. So, obviously, we never found the perfect compound. (laughs) Otherwise, we'd be talking about it. But it says to me that there's something missing in the basic science, and there's things to be unlocked yet, and it would be worth pursuing. So the idea here is that you're giving the drug in a way that might uh, decrease uh, the sedation uh, and might also enhance the activity of the endogenous systems. Because remember, in addition to the ascending pain sensing system, there's a very strong descending pain modulatory system. And the big player there is norepinephrine. And so any compound that can tap into that system uh, could be extremely valuable. So again, here's another alpha-2 agonist, and this one's kind of interesting in that it's sort of the approach of the peripherally restricted opioids. So perhaps if you peripherally restrict an alpha-2 compound, maybe you'll get the pain relief without the cardiovascular effects, right? Clonidine's major antihypertensive activities at the brain, not in the periphery and also sedation as well so i think all the, again a very exciting not only compound for clinical application but what it might tell us and what it might pretend for a direction to go in the future tramadol uh the injection uh, is now uh, approved in the united states and it, you know it had been around for many years and Germany, of course, but it was not uh, developed in the United States because of the concern over what it might imply about uh, drug abuse, and the idea at the time was to have this a non-scheduled drug. Uh, It's also interesting in that by going the IV route, you're bypassing the first pass effect, and remember that... Tramadol's opioid component is primarily in its metabolite, the 2D6 metabolite, often called the M1 metabolite. So this is interesting, again, from a basic science point of view. It's gonna be interesting to see what pains are effectively uh, treated by the non-opioid component of this particular uh, compound. Then there's combinations. Uh, You know, what's exciting about this, of course, is that we're learning that most pains are multi-mechanistic in their physiology or pathophysiology, and therefore optimal treatment is best achieved by a multi-mechanistic sort of approach to pain relief. So it makes sense. Uh, Combinations uh, are always exciting. Like in this case, you're, you're combining two different mechanisms so that should really help a lot. Uh, Combinations are difficult to develop. Uh, They're not always as quick or inexpensive or as easy an approval process as they may seem, so it's always nice to see when these come along and what they tell us about the interaction between the mechanisms, because the hope is that the two mechanisms will lead to pain relief and you'll get reduced adverse effects because the adverse effects are not shared. So here, this represents uh, a, uh, again, a uh, advance in the thinking. So here we have a kappa opioid receptor agonist that's restricted to the periphery. So historically there was a conundrum and that is that the, Kappa agonists could produce analgesia, but one of the main problems with them was the CNS effects, hallucinations, and th- things like that. And so, by restricting it, uh, hopefully, you would be able to get uh, the analgesic effect without the others. And again, it raises all sorts of issues. I mean, really? You know, an opioid could relieve pain by not getting into the brain? Uh, that's just kind of interesting and hopefully, will lead to uh, future discoveries. Uh, This one uh, developed out of the thinking of uh, Robert Lefkowitz many years ago now, and he won a Nobel Prize for a lot of this thinking. And what he did was think beyond the receptor and remember that the signal had to be transduced post-receptor. And it was possible that in the case of uh, G-protein-coupled receptors... Uh, that uh, there could be different pathways. And so what you could do is design a compound that was, for lack of a better word, biased toward one uh, or another of the uh, second messenger pathways. And so this really is going to say whether that whole idea is possible or not. Then we have some practical things like a water-soluble prodrug of capsation. Pro-drugs are always of interest. Here's one that follows uh, sort of with pre-out. So pre-out works by a different way, but it also is a neurotoxin from a a, a natural source from cones. This particular one works on the nicotinic acetylcholine receptor. So as of date, that has not been a big target for analgesics. Maybe this one will uh, lead the way. And so from the cone, another uh, combination, paracetamol, acetaminophen, and ibuprofen. We've known for many, many years that that's a nice combination, again, of two different mechanisms. Paracetamol, acetaminophen is not an NSAID, and so this would make sense from a mechanistic point of view. And with that, I thank you very much,
0: Joe. I can tell you that uh, we. Pro- we probably could have Bob up here for an hour, uh, and again, it's just some selective ones. So at this time, I'm going to invite my faculty to come back up, and I'm going to open it up to any questions that you may have. Okay, are there any questions uh, for any of the uh, faculty? Yes, Richard.
5: Sorry, my voice is soft, but um, ERAS colorectal surgery interop, tap block, neuraxial tap block with liposomal or lidocaine drip. What would be probably, and I know it may be patient specific on some of these, but thoughts on those four comparison? So the.
1: Question, if you didn't hear it, uh, is about enhanced recovery in colorectal procedures. What type of regional blockade um, uh, would be most appropriate? So in terms of evidence, um, when we – so when you are doing – so let's break it into two patients um, in terms of the procedure. One is open. The other one is laparoscopic. So there is fair amount of evidence that for open a thoracic epidural probably works the best um, because it does involve you know, more in the thoracic regions. And if you infuse a fairly limited amount of local anesthetic, a patient can still uh, ambulate. For the laparoscopic approach, the options are um, potentially a few. You mentioned TAP-block. Uh, which, again, there's a fair amount of evidence that for laparoscopic that it works well. Um, there's also a fair amount of study that use spinal, uh, and some of the use spinal opioids only, uh, and that seems to work fairly well, because don't forget, these patients typically, they just need analgesia for about 24, 36 hours, and then they are about, you know, they, the next morning, they up and about, ambulate, and we are ready to get them out of hospital. So, in those situations, I would not recommend the thoracic epidural. I think TAP block or spinal, uh, I think it works well. There is also some evidence that local anesthetic infusion uh, seems to work reasonably well. The only concern is that many hospitals don't accept patients on the floor with local anesthetic infusion. And again, I think there's a fair amount of hospital that does it, and I think you know, it's fairly safe to do it. So, to answer your question, I think TAP block and Spina with opioids seems to work well and has been at least about a dozen studies, and there are some meta analysis that say that it works, works well. Hopefully, it answers your question. Any other
3: questions? CRNA with, a, uh, with an attending or a resident and uh, my wife's first husband, but uh, I'm a, that's. <clears throat> And 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 it's done, it's not done in in what we used to see, you know, the little sheet of paper and then the resident would draw a line through it and hand it to you. No, it takes a minimum of an hour, but that's getting in all their tests and things they've had done at other hospitals and sitting down in a non-threatening environment and discussing outcome and their needs, as well as our needs, putting it together. So if it's a caregiver or family, they all have issues and then then disclose what we're going to do afterwards and the cautions we're going to use. Make sense? Okay.
0: And another question, one moment. I'll give you the mic.
5: This is a question for Dr. Rafa. How would you, what would you tell the hospital administration who's who's telling you there's no justification for the cost of IV sedaminophen compared to oral or rectal route? That seems to be an ongoing saga.
4: Uh, maybe I'll purposely leave the mic uh, low for that song. <laughs> you know, I I don't know. Thank goodness I don't have to get involved with the pricing of things. Uh, I would just argue that it's a good idea, and I don't know how else to address it. I have no idea of why it was priced that way. Um, et cetera. so I, I wouldn't be of any help.
0: I, I might be able to help you, Charles, on that one. I was more about the yeah, so there there is a paper that Bob and I recently just published that looked difference between, in a perioperative setting, in a patient who is going to get a multimodal analgesia, opioid plus paracetamol. And when you look at the effect of interoperative um, opioids given, and then oral administration of acetaminophen versus IV administration, there's a lag time in your uh, ability to absorb uh, the uh, acetaminophen in the gut. So there actually is this potential lag time that takes place. You're not gonna get the type of analgesic response that you would with parenteral formulation. And that's an article you could look that we recently published. Another question? What about if you used a rectal acetaminophen, say, like two hours before surgery? Sure. And, you know, I think there uh, that if you use rectal instead of PO, a lot of times, uh, again, you're going to have to do this in the um, uh, preoperative holding area. If you have the staff that can do that, there potentially may be. I, I don't know what um, – I don't know many uh, anesthesiologists that would be giving it uh, rectally intraoperatively, because we're usually at the other head of the body, right? Um, so, uh, so that's the technical part. Um, but again, I, I, we have not studied the difference in the, the pharmacokinetic profile on that would be, but obviously rectal absorption you know, we've used this uh, particularly in pediatric uh, anesthesia for a number of years. I think it just comes down to um, working it into the the actual flow schedule and, and where you'd be doing that if it would be done in the perioperative holding area is, is there any issues with uh, actual uh, compliance on that end or would the you know paracetamol or IVC the acetaminophen uh, come dislodged, et cetera um, because you're going to be doing it you know, an hour or two before. So these are some of the just practical technicalities. Uh, I can speak more to what we found on the oral versus parental. You know, there's
4: also, there was a, a sort of anecdotal evidence, I mean, and I think when it comes to pain relief, this is extremely important. And that is, I'm told that the patients like the idea that they're getting a pain reliever that they're very familiar with, that they got over the counter prior to this, and that it's going to work quicker. So they just love that idea. And the anecdotal evidence is they they use less analgesics because they're just calmer about the whole thing.
1: T.J., can you add anything to that? So um, the only thing I would add is that there there is a uh, a paper that looked at um, human volunteers where three router administration were tested, uh, rectal, oral, and IV. And they measure uh, the plasma concentration of the acetaminophen as well as the spinal concentration. So if you look at the at least the blood levels, rectal is most erratic. The absorption is very uh, variable. And it peaks around probably to six, almost like six hours after you've given it. Oral is a little bit less erratic, but it still takes about three, two, three three hours really for it to peak and obviously IV, when you give it, um, it's go into the bloodstream immediately. Again, in that study, it didn't measure pain score, but if you look at the blood level, there were differences. Thank you, TJ.
0: Any other questions? Yeah, Richard, One On
5: your pre-op testing, pre-op education, uh, we have what we call like a boot camp uh, for knees and stuff. Um, In the talk that I saw uh, yesterday, the psychology of catastrophizing and those patients and the papers that I've read can lend itself to chronic pain situations and length of stay in the hospital. Are you identifying those patients and are you actually providing extra education, maybe psychological education in terms of uh, other types of non-farm therapy that they can utilize during their stay, and then maybe post-operative? If you perceive that it's there, that's the first thing.
3: Recognition is there. If you perceive that it's there, that's the time to act. And if our group felt that the patient would benefit by a pain psychologist or a psychiatrist or a social worker to get them through this, we definitely – Engage them. Drugs are not going to take away a history of years of, uh, of that type of catastrophization. So, uh, if we, But you have to perceive it. If you're not looking for it, you're not going to find it. So perception comes before, and then that's when we, we generally turf out. Or the family can help by saying, there are things that have been going on which I think you should know, or
0: a, a loved one or a spouse. Um, TJ, anything to add? And then that will be the last.
1: Right. So I think that's a very good question. Um, There are, in the whole enhanced recovery program, there are a number of hospitals now starting to have a pain consult before surgery, focusing not on everybody, but for those who are currently on opioids or who have been difficult to manage in a past surgery. So they focus on these group of patients to optimize their preoperative Analgesic consumption, you know, they are, um, whatever the opioids they are on, so optimize them. And therefore, these are the people that they focus on potentially, you know, provide better regional techniques so that post operatively they are better in terms of pain being managed. And also, more importantly, in the transition between, you know, uh, IV to oral. And these are sort of people that typically is most difficult to in the sort of transition phase. So, this program they have found that, you know, if you have, targeted population that they focus on seems to pay
0: dividend. Thank you, TJ. Thank you all for your questions and enjoy lunch. We look forward to uh, uh, seeing you again.